Hello and welcome to the Veer, Vulnerabilis Veer podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. And I'm Albert Imperato. Where we help men communicate and build empathy. Season two of the Veer, Vulnerabilis Veer podcast is sponsored by our good friends at Standard and Strange, where the clothes and the people are anything but ordinary, and the motto is own fewer, better things. All right, Albert, here we are officially in 2021. Um, there's been a whole lot happened already uh, this year. It's been quite eventful. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's just another year and, and we're here doing it. Um, so how's it been upstate? How was your uh, New Year's Eve, man? Uh, New Year's, that was nice. I had two full weeks off and uh, we didn't think early 2021 was just going to be some blooming new uh, creature we uh, realized it uh, was going to probably have a lot of the same characteristics as 2020 i think uh, i'm feeling some hope there's some some things that we could be excited about and uh also we had let's face it a rather epic epic monumental moment in american history last week and uh i just still think we're all we're all digesting and processing what happened and that's why our guest uh, today is just could not be better timed. Um, Jason Kander is going to come and talk to us. Uh, and I'll tell you a little bit about why I thought of reaching out to Jason. And uh, we could, we could uh, reference that. But it was uh, something that really happened because I was, I was educating myself about the election. And I, I learned some things from Jason. So anyway, that's, what, that's how we got to this guest. And uh, yeah, that, that's basically it. And uh, this is our first interview in 2021. Uh, we've had a couple of uh, episodes already air this year, and uh, this will probably uh, be one of the more interesting ones. We've got a lot of great topics to talk about. President Barack Obama, in the final interview of his presidency, was asked who gave him hope for America's future. And the first person he mentioned was Jason Kander, a former army captain who served in Afghanistan. Jason was elected to the Missouri State Legislature in 2008 and as the Missouri Secretary of State in 2012, making him the first millennial ever elected to statewide office. In 2016, while Donald Trump was winning Missouri by 19 points, Jason nearly unseated a Republican U.S. Senator. In 2017, he became a CNN commentator, founded Let America Vote, a national campaign against voter suppression, and launched his podcast, Majority 54, which debuted at number one on iTunes. His memoir, Outside the Wire, 10 Lessons I've Learned in Everyday Courage, became a New York Times bestseller. Jason openly considered a 2020 presidential campaign before declaring instead for mayor of Kansas City. Three months later, with the mayor's office all but one, Jason announced he was dropping out of the race and stepping back from public life to confront dangerous and worsening symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder he'd suffered in the decade since returning home from Afghanistan. Seven months of weekly VA appointments later, Jason entered the current phase of his life, one which he refers to now as post-traumatic growth. Today, he builds villages of tiny houses for homeless veterans in cities across America as president of the Veterans Community Project. A graduate from American University in Georgetown Law, Jason is married to his high school sweetheart, Diana. They live in Kansas with their son, True, and daughter, Bella. In his spare time, Jason enjoys training for irrational physical challenges and coaching True's baseball team. Jason, thank you so much for coming on. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I, I appreciate it. 
Yeah, man. Um, I mean, based on uh, what's happened in the, in the last couple of weeks uh, and uh, after reading your book, I, I couldn't think of a better guest to have. It's kind of a serendipitous, um, but also just totally weird. So um, just right off the bat, man, um, how are you, man? And, and how are you feeling about what's going on in, in the world today? Uh, so all week when, you know, I've been on the phone with friends or whatever, and people say, you know, the, the standard greeting of, you know, how you doing? My answer has been, you know, really good uh, insurrection adjusted. So that's <laughs> where I am. I'm, I'm insurrection adjusted pretty good. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's a scary time um, for the country. There's no doubt about it. I mean, it has been for four years, but it's, it's, a, it's an, in, it is an unnaturally uh, scary time right now. Um, that said, there's an awful lot to be optimistic about and to be hopeful about. Um, and so I try to focus on that. Well, I just want to, if you don't mind me jumping in, Adam, the reason uh, that I wanted to, to reach out to Jason was a couple of months ago, actually, was that I was having election night uh, just meltdown. I, w I was getting ready to go to bed and, and uh, the news did not look good from a, you know, from a layman's point of view. It looked like a very bad night uh, for, for Biden. And I was going to bed rather depressed, imagining, you know, four more years of, of the craziness. And uh, I wasn't a happy camper, but uh, just as I was putting, turning off my phone, I hit Twitter one more time. And the last tweet of the night was Jason Kander saying, oh, I'm going to bed. I know I know uh, Pennsylvania. I know those districts. I've been in those districts. Uh, he's got it. And this is when Biden, when the, the, the count was so far behind. And it was a very empowering moment, not only because he put me to bed with a little degree of hope, but it also made me realize something significant about the moment uh, that Jason actually had confidence based on facts. He actually knew a lot about the area that he was talking about. And so much of our current uh, issues in our country really is about people having very, very passionate opinions, often about things that they don't really have that much uh, information about. And if they have information, they're either getting it from one source or they're getting it from really a, a source that's deliberately trying to trip them up. So it was, it was like a double hit. And uh, so anyway, I went and I read Jason's bio and I was just really struck. Um, you know, I kept hearing the story of Obama mentioning him as the future of the Democratic Party. Uh, you know, no pressure, no pressure. <laughs> and then I read this bio and there's this just extraordinary honesty about what had happened and how his life had taken a turn. And, and I just was so uh, just moved and just thought, wow, that takes a lot of that takes a lot of courage to take a dramatically different direction. So I guess maybe maybe we want to get into it by by talking a little bit. You're you're um, going back for a bit. Did you know you joined the army? This is in response of uh, because uh, to nine eleven. It was was it specifically because of what happened with nine eleven, or had you been thinking about the army? Uh, you know, I'd been thinking about it a little bit, but yeah, I mean, it was in response to it. I mean, for me. Uh, you know, I, I didn't, I don't come from like a, a military family in terms of careers, right? Like, like a lot of people my age, my grandfather was in World War II, my great grandfather was in World War I. Um, but, you know, they went, they, they were in the war, and then they went back to their lives. And, uh, but I, I had always really admired that. And 
my parents were juvenile probation officers. That's how they met. My dad was, was also a police officer. Uh, and so service was definitely present uh, in our household. And it was an ethic that ran through everything. But there was no like, and you'll be in the military. There was none of that. Um, but I had, I put the military in this uh, maybe someday category in my mind, uh, like when I was in college, which would have been, you know, when, when 9-11 happened, I was um, 20, I think, maybe 19. Um, I think I was 20. And so I, you know, I had, I wasn't like in great shape. I wasn't like ready to go in or anything like that. Um, but I had just admired it. And, and had, I think there was a 50% chance had 9-11 ever, ha uh, not ever happened, 50% chance maybe I would have found some way to serve in a small way. So, you know, at some point, but it happened. And I was like, well, this is, this is my war. Uh, clearly, just like my grandpa and my great grandpa, like, I'm going to, I'm going to do what you do when you're 20 years old and your country is attacked and I'm going to go serve. And when that's over, I guess I'll go back to my life. And so to me, it was rather simple. And um, so that's what I did. Uh, but I, it turned out I loved the military. I loved, uh, I loved the army. I loved leading soldiers and I really wanted to keep doing it. Uh, it just, you know, when I, after um, about eight years um, of being guard and reserve mostly, but also active duty for a time and deploying, um, and I had other things going on and I ended up having to, you know, finish up my commitment and, and get out. Uh, that was really hard for me because I, I loved that job and I loved the work. So in that period um, that you just mentioned, that takes you through that eight year period, through the time that you're in Afghanistan. Um, how, how long were you there? And tell us, tell us a little bit about what you did there. Sure. So I went um, in the fall of 06, got back in early 07. So I had a, a short deployment by army standards. I was there about four months. Um, and, uh, my job, I was a military intelligence officer. Um, and, uh, my job over there was to do anti-corruption and anti-espionage investigations, um, and basically figure out what the level of corruption was, uh, in certain sectors of the Afghan government, uh, and military, but it was to figure out which bad guys were pretending to be good guys. Um, and, um, you know, what that involved for me was, uh, going out, and uh, spending a lot of time functionally by myself. A lot of the time it was me and a, and a translator, sometimes in uniform, sometimes not, um, and uh, out on the roads, uh, taking meetings, meeting with folks who were of questionable allegiance. It was um, spending you know, more time than I'd like in rooms with people who I didn't know uh, whether or not, for sure, whether or not I was gonna get out of the room, right? Um, so there was a real risk at times of, um, being kidnapped or killed or kidnapped and killed. So um, that was that was what the war was for me. So it was that was a thing that I struggled with for a long time because, you know, to me, traditional combat was John Wayne stuff. You know, it was you're crawling under heavy fire to whatever. Um, but that's not what the war was for me. And so it took a long time and frankly, therapy for me to see myself for what I am, which is a combat veteran. Um, the fact that I was fortunate enough not to have to take a life uh, really is, is irrelevant to whether or not what I went through was, was traumatic. Um, it was a, a therapist at the VA who said to me, you know, um, you were vulnerable for hours at a time in the most dangerous place on earth and nobody knew where you were. And if anything happened, nobody was going to be able to come and get you. Uh, and they were like, that's the reason all your friends who were in a lot of firefights say they couldn't have done what you did. Um, and it took a long time for me to come to terms with that. And, 
And I think the reason that my announcement in that regard was so valuable to a lot of veterans is because I just, I don't know. I just heard from so many people who were like, I was sure that I didn't do enough and that there was just something wrong with me. And now with you saying this, I understand like it is post-traumatic stress. And, you know, and this is from people who, who came back physically wounded, but still, I mean, you, you are taught when you're in the military that whatever you're doing is not that big of a deal. And that's a necessary form of brainwashing because if they don't teach you that, you won't do the job. You can't functionally do the job if you think what you're doing is scarier than what, what other people are doing or, or, is, or is meant to be really frightening. Um, the problem is they don't turn that off when you leave. And then, you know, you spend, in my case, a decade being like, well, it wasn't that big of a deal what I did. So what, what right would I have to call this what it is, which is post-traumatic stress? Was there a sense of, uh, of guilt wrapped up into that, into that feeling like, wow, I was one of the lucky ones. I, didn't, I wasn't in direct combat. Uh, did you think guilt played a part in, in what gave it sort of a psychic, psychic pain attached to it? Uh, yeah, but to me, it wasn't about whether, I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, part of it was, yeah, like I didn't have a bullet whiz by my ear. I just, like, for instance, my violent nightmares that I had for a decade every night were about being kidnapped, right? Um, and so, uh, so yeah, there was, there was that. There was the denying myself um, any self-care or any, or any possibility of, of, of needing this help. But actually, I think the basic guilt, the survivor's guilt or the, or the shame and self-loathing that, that is common to trauma victims, whether military or otherwise, is just the sense that, you know, I made it back and I didn't get hurt. I mean, I have friends who, there was a guy I was in training with um, when I was in training to become an officer who, he was in my platoon at Fort Lewis and his name was TJ Remission. His, his name is TJ Remission and TJ uh, was one of the best cadets I ever served with uh, when I, you know, when I was training to be an officer and, and I think probably went on to be one of the best officers in the army. He was extremely promising I mean, he was the best in our platoon. And every time he would lead a mission in training, they would, they, you know, the trainers would say like, you're ready to lead in Iraq and Afghanistan right now. Um, and, you know, a year after we were together, a little over a year after we were together, he, you know, a sniper um, uh, got him in Iraq. And, you know, today TJ is blind and, and severely brain damaged. And, you know, that's just off the top of my head. One guy I think about who, yeah, like that, when, when you know that sort of thing, and when you, when you have people in your life or people who are no longer in your life, it, the idea of, feeling like you can lay claim to a, an unseen wound, um, it, it feels until you, until you come to terms with it, until you get to where I am now, it, it felt for a long time like what we call stolen valor, which is just, you know, unacceptable. You're not going to do that. Yeah, I mean, no one's going to deny the, the horrors of the war and, and what everyone went through. Um, but you write a lot about in, in your book about all the things that you, you did learn and all of the the great things that you took away, um, one of the first and uh, you know probably the, the standout um, you know stories that I took away was uh, the green face kid, and you know having the courage to just get get in the car and and go, um, you know kind of weighing those out uh, between the two, um, you know what like you have so many things that you learned and you gained, and yet you know you had some traumatic experiences and you still do. Um, you know, at the end of the day, like, was it worth it? Do you think, um, you know, a decision might have, uh, you know, changed your life up for the different at all? 
Yeah, the only regret I have in the whole process is that I didn't go get therapy at the VA 10 years ago. Um, yeah. I, I don't have any, um, you know, there's no part of me that wishes I hadn't served or, or hadn't volunteered to deploy or anything like that. Um, because it made me, the, the training, the deployment, all of it made me a better person in, in, a, in a hundred different ways. Um, but I also got hurt. And that injury, um, that injury, uh, you know, changed me for a period of years and, 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 and caused me to suffer in ways that, that were not enjoyable for me or for some people around me. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I wish that I, I wish I had known more. Uh, and I mean, to be real honest, like, I wish that the public announcement that I made uh, in October 2nd of 2018, I wish that some other version, somebody like me who was well-known had done that 10 years earlier, because if so, I think I would have gone and gotten help then. And that would have given me many years of being able to be emotionally present with my family and all sorts of things. So, and I have that now and I'm, and I'm really grateful for it. And I really do feel like a, a big part of my role in the world is to, is to be that person for others, which is why now, I mean, I appreciate you bringing up the book. I'm really proud of the book. It did well. Um, there's nothing in the book I would change other than chapter seven, which is the chapter that I spent trying to convince myself that I didn't have post-traumatic stress. And so now um, I'm working on my second book, which is all about, you know, the journey of post-traumatic stress through therapy and post-traumatic growth. So um, yeah, there's nothing I would change uh, other than I would get some of those years back by getting some, some help a long time ago. Yeah. I mean, therapy, I mean, geez, I've, I've been in it for, for so long, but um, you know, obviously for very different reasons, but what, just to kind of give us a little taste of, of what that was like, you know, for, for people that just starting out, you know, kind of saying, okay, it's time to get help. Um, what was that like? You know, the, the first few sessions and kind of just coming to terms with it. You know, I think one of my biggest misconceptions about therapy was that it was sort of like, um, like getting, like getting an IV drip or something, you know, like you go in and you just talk until you're better. Uh, I think I saw it as kind of passive. Um, and I, I, I can't speak for other forms of therapy, but at least for what I did for post-traumatic stress, which was cognitive processing therapy and prolonged exposure therapy. Um, it was, it's very active and, and it's a lot of work. And I would, com I would compare it much more to like physical rehabilitation, you know, like it's much more like, you know, somebody who's trying to learn to walk again, right? Um, it's, you gotta real you gotta want it pretty bad for it to, for it to work. And, and, you know, for people who, who do and who, who follow the program and who do their homework, literal homework, um, well over half, uh, well over half of those folks at the VA get to the point where the symptoms no longer disrupt their life and, and you can you can judge them to be in a in a form of recovery, and I'm happy to be in that in that group. But for me, what it was was yeah. At first, I wasn't resistant to it. If anything, I mean, I had gotten to the point where I had bottomed out so badly that I was like, I mean, I remember my first meeting with a clinical social worker just to get diagnosed at the VA, and it was supposed to be 30 minutes, but she'd ask me a question, I'd just talk, you know, because I hadn't. And she was like, "Man, you are so ready for therapy," and uh, and. It was, it was just realizing like, it was not just talking. It was a lot of work in between the weekly sessions. It was um, listening to myself 
tell my therapist about, uh, you know, traumatic moments and then, you know, processing those and going and having the physical reaction, the re-experiencing, and then going and doing it again and again, um, going and, uh, sitting in a restaurant with my back to the door and doing it for 45 minutes and making myself do that. And, you know, all sorts of that kind of thing that was specific to me, but that was the biggest thing was realizing, Oh, this is active. And for me, that was good because a personality type thing of me, I guess, is that I was like, Oh, this is, I have, I can, I can put hard work into this and help determine the outcome by working my ass off at it. Well, I'm a soldier. Like I understand that. And so that's what I did. And I'm glad I did. If, if you don't mind, I would actually like to go back a little bit before that, actually. Um, first of all, I, I just think it's absolutely fantastic and brilliant that you're using your experience and your voice to help other people understand this whole process. Because, I mean, just the way you just described active therapy, uh, that sounds, that's automatically, I think, is going to trigger some people to say, oh, wow, that's different than what let's face it, we get these perceptions about therapy, watching television uh, shows and whatever else. And, and, you know, the idea of the, the lying on the couch and the, the therapist sitting there with their pad and pencil. So there's all, all kinds of weird preconceptions, but I do want to go back. You come out of the army, you're, you're getting involved in politics. You get elected to office in Missouri, a very uh, conservative state. You're a progressive. Uh, you're, you're kind of beating the odds. You become the secretary of state of Missouri, one of the youngest politicians like in the whole country at that point, uh, uh, office holders. Um, did you in your mind already have a sense of, oh, wow, I'm on the, this politics track and I have this is where I'm going. Did you already have a very conscious sense that that was the, the place that you were going? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, politicians are really fond of acting like, oh, this is all just an accident. Um, but no, like, uh, that was, it was a combination of things. Like, it was a way of continuing my service. It was also, um, you know, I was raised, I care about the country and I wanted to improve people's lives. And there was an element, at, in retrospect, I can say, I didn't know this then of I was I was in search of a sense of redemption. Like I didn't feel I had done enough. Uh, I didn't feel like I deserved the things in my life that, uh, you know, the blessings in my life. And I didn't feel worthy of them. I felt like a burden. Um, and I felt like and I didn't like myself very much. So uh, I thought, well, if I can self-medicate to some, you know, I didn't know that that's what I was doing, but you know, it, it, it quieted the noise inside my mind, right? Like if I could focus on work now for me, I chose a career in politics, but it could have just as easily been something else, but it was like, that's what quieted my mind. And then, you know, once I had become pretty successful at it and, and ended up with a national profile, well, then you had this whole other element of like fame and uh, adulation. And, and, and that was a drug that helped quiet my mind. And, uh, and and was sort of, a, a, I used it as sort of a balance to the, to what was going on inside me, which was like a lot of negative self-talk about me. And then, so, you know, when you had people saying like, you should be president, well, that was sort of a little bit of an elixir for what was going on inside. So it was a mix of a lot of things. Um, but yeah, like, look, when I got elected secretary of state of Missouri at the age of 31, I was the first millennial um, ever elected to statewide office. Yeah, I was like, I think I got a pretty good shot to be president. And then when I 
you know, in 2017 and 18, when I was, I campaigned in 47 states in a year and a half, I was on 300 airplanes. Like, I mean, I was giving very cute answers about whether I was going to run for president, but obviously I was going to run for president. So um, it just got to a point where I, I knew that something was really wrong and I needed to address it. And, it, and then it became, well, maybe I can find this need for redemption. I can find this redemption I'm searching for by serving my neighbors. So it became, okay, oh, instead of running for president, I'm going to go home and run for mayor of Kansas City, which also had the advantage of being a race that I knew I was going to win. And I, but more than importantly, like I just thought, okay, that job, maybe that job will help heal what's inside me. And I can go home and I, and I said, okay, I'll go to the VA. Well, I went home, the race was going great. We were going to win, but I did not go to the VA. Um, and then things just got worse and worse. And then finally it was like, okay, got to stop everything. Wow. Um, so the, the night that Obama, I mean, it's like part of your sto life story now, like he picks you of, of all the names he could have mentioned. Did he call you up ahead of time? Say, Hey Jason, I'm gonna put you on the spot. I'm getting your name out there. Or did you suddenly get like, Oh dude, he, you got the Obama shout out a future uh, of the democratic party. Like what was that moment? Like, well, what happened was, so it was in, it was in, I think January maybe of, so, yeah. Cause it was the day, it was like a day or two before he left, before office, he left office in 2017. Yeah. So, um, what had happened was, you know, I, I came in, I came really close in 16 to win in the Senate race and just barely didn't win, but I had overperformed by a lot. And so people were like, oh, this guy seems to know how to win and or how to get these voters uh, more than others. And so I started to get a lot of attention from that. And I was getting calls from people who were sort of in Obama world, like in his orbit, and people were calling and giving me advice and also wanting, you know, names you would know and wanting to know, like, what are you thinking? What are you thinking is next? And then I'd tell them and then we, I wouldn't talk to them for a couple of days. And then they'd call back and oh, here's, you know, I was thinking about what you said. And I didn't think anything of that. Um, and then like, it, it never occurred to me that like I was having a brokered conversation with the president of the United States. Like that is not what I thought was happening. I had met him once briefly before, but, um, and I was close with a lot of the people in his world, but I, I didn't, I, I didn't like think like, Oh, I was like, I don't know if he knows my name. That'd be cool, you know? Um, and so, uh, so then um, I remember the way I found out was uh, then I went, before I went to bed that the night, so he said it on, uh, on a podcast. He said on Pod Save America. Um, and it was his final interview um, before he left office. And I had, I saw that I'm friends with those guys. And I saw that they were hyping and this is before I even had a podcast with them. Uh, they were hyping that they had interviewed him. And I, I texted um, John Lovett and was like, hey, man, that's awesome. Like, pretty good interview. And all he, all Lovett said to me was, um, yeah, I think you should listen to it. I think you will find it enjoyable. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I didn't think anything of that. I thought it's an oddly dry thing for Lovett to say. That's not usually how he talks. And I woke up in the morning. He's, and I, he's a colorful one. <laughs> yeah. And I woke up um, and I like had all these crazy texts and stuff. And so I listened to the episode and yeah, and that's when, and, and that's when it all kind of clicked, like, cause you know, like in a movie when it's like, there's a twist and then you go, Oh, all this other stuff makes sense. Cause of the way, what he said, what, you know, he, he mentioned me and then he said, and I've been telling him and then he said some other stuff and I was like, Oh, oh okay. And, and it was, so that was kind of funny. And then, um, and then from there, you know, um, we ended up a couple of times like, getting to talk and, and sitting down at length at one point. And so, so were you actually in the, in the mayoral race at that point? Or was it before the mayoral no, race? No, no, it was before. I mean, I, I met with him when I was going to run for president. 
And and the so basically you're running for mayor. It's like how this does not happen often in in political life in the U.S. where someone in in the middle of a very successful uh, campaign decides to confront what's going on in their life. And tell was it a really just particularly awful night? And you woke up and said this morning, sorry, I'm changing the direction of my life because that's a. I'm really curious what that moment was where you said, that's it. I'm, I'm going, I'm turning here. Well, to explain that, I, I got to give you a little more context, I guess, which is that, so what I dealt with, um, with post-traumatic stress, what I, it was a few things. It was um, violent nightmares um, that kept me from being able to sleep. So I didn't get a good night's sleep for about a decade, um, like at all. And, uh, and then hypervigilance, which is the feeling that the world is a very dangerous place and you're in a lot of danger and so are the people you care about. Um, and so you sort of act accordingly and that keeps you kind of just on edge all the time and it's exhausting. And then, um, all that sort of led to emotional numbness, which is like where you're trying to get rid of the bad feelings, but you get rid of all the feelings and you can't really feel anything. Um, and then some self-loathing. Uh, and so all that was sort of mixed in there. Um, some simmering anger a lot of the time, just in order to gain a sense of control over something. Um, and, you know, just, just, it's disruptive. It's very disruptive to your life. And then when you put all that together, and if you think about living through that for 10 years and that getting progressively worse, um, that's depressing. And then, and then depression, you know, so it, I didn't know any better. So at the time I just said, I'm struggling with depression and PTSD symptoms. What I found out was, you know, I, I had post-traumatic stress and it had been going on so long that now I was experiencing depression. That was a symptom of it. And then, and then suicidal ideation became a symptom of that and of the post-traumatic stress and feeling like a burden. So I had just gone down this road for long enough. Um, and I had for many years found a way to cope with it or outrun it by just, you know, hard charging in my career or whatever. Um, and that wasn't working anymore. Um, I couldn't outrun it anymore. And it just got to a point where it was frightening. Um, you know, I called the veteran suicide line and um, realized that like I was, I was not different than other people. And that, and you know, I, now I have two kids at the time I had, you know, a wife and a son and, and now I have a wife and two kids. And, and uh, that was enough, you know, just those two people, let alone three to be responsible for that. I realized like, I, I don't want to die. And I knew what the statistics were. Um, and uh, I don't want to end up like that. And so, and so I, I took the the step that I did because I knew that, I wasn't going to be able to continue doing what I was doing and throw myself into getting better the way I needed to. Um, well, to, to me, to me, that moment is like an incredible, incredible uh, moment of courage because I think we are in it as a society, especially men in our in a very success oriented society like America, many people just power on through and don't, they don't do exactly what you did and when it's exactly the thing that would completely set their life on a different course. So I just want to say I have the most incredible, I, I could think of many public figures if, if they had only taken an honest look at how, where they were headed, maybe they would have really understood the, the nature of their, of their situation. But I just want to read this line that, that I read in the, the New York Times article where you kind of talk after the fact and start sharing that you've come 
you know, you've been in therapy and it's been helpful and you're kind of explaining what's happened in your life. But this image, you say, after 11 years of trying to outrun depression and PTSD symptoms, I have finally concluded that it's faster than me. I have to stop running. I have to turn around and confront it. And I just, I wanted to read that because I think if there's anybody listening who feels like there's something kind of tracing them behind them, that to remember your courage in turning around and saying, you know what, I'm going to deal with this first, even if it means I'm going to put my my run for mayor on on hold. So I, I just... Well, I, I appreciate that a lot. Um, yeah, that line is actually from, I mean, it's in the article, but it's actually from my announcement the day that I that I decided to step back. And it, and the thing is like, what you I appreciate what you're saying, but for about 10 years, maybe not all 10, but... I was the person who was just trying to power through it. And, um, you know, from my perspective, I had just come to a point where I couldn't do that anymore. Uh, but to, to any extent that it took any level of courage, it's just, it's only in the fact that like, I was throwing away the one thing that was going really objectively well in my life um, for the hope that I could get better. Because the thing was like we have, or is, we have so few examples in public life of, people who have had post-traumatic stress and now have and now are in a post-traumatic growth phase. If you think about movies, you think about, you know, media reports, all of it. When people with post-traumatic stress are portrayed, they are portrayed, they're in the throes of it. And it's, get, it, it's, it's got the best of them. You don't see what is the majority of people who get treatment. You don't see folks who, have, you know, have been able to uh, get to a point where it's, where they can manage it. I mean, I compare it to, um, a knee injury like that. I, you know, I, before I went in the army, I, I hurt my knee. I had to get surgery and physical therapy. Um, and I, my knee still gives me problems, but like I can run pretty far. I just know like going to have to ice my knee. Right. And I know that like, you know, I do a little bit better on a track than on a hard road. So my knee does not disrupt my life. It does not even disrupt to any great degree my, uh, you know, exercise routine. And that's where, that's where I am now with post-traumatic stress. It's an injury. And if you don't treat it, it will get worse and worse and worse. And if you pretend it's not there, it will be incredibly disruptive to your life. If you manage it and you do the work that you need to do, you know, you, you, can, you, can, you can move along really well. And that's what I'm doing. Whenever Albert was telling me about this and I read the article and everything, I was just like, when you make that hard of a pivot in your life and you're just like, okay, social media done. Like I'm turning off my phone like this, like, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not doing this parts of my life. Uh, there's a huge adjustment period and there is um, a lot of, you know, realizations and a lot of clarity that happens. Um, so with, you know, no social media, probably not a lot of news intake, you know, you, you made a, a huge change. What were some of those like moments of clarity um, that you did have uh, kind of in, in that time where you did step back, step back? Well, it took a little while because um, you were so from the moment I made the announcement, I, uh, I, I decided I was not going to, I was not going to pay any attention to the news. In fact, I was like, I had the people in my life kind of keeping me in a bubble where I didn't hear it because I had been thinking about how I played in the media for so long um, that I just knew that if I was going to go down this road, it needed to start with living this and not thinking about how this appeared. And so I tried really hard not to have any idea how this played out in the news. So like, I didn't, I had no idea that it was like 
the biggest story in the country. No, I had no idea. I, I figured people knew about it, but I didn't think it was anything like that. And, um, and then I started to kind of, you know, and also everybody in the world who you can imagine was calling, but I didn't have my phone on me. Um, and I'd given it to somebody else. So I knew it must be a big deal. Cause like I'm getting texts from, you know, like Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and stuff. And, and so I was like, okay, well clearly they've heard about it. Um, but I really tried to stay away from all that. And then three days or so, um, some point after that, um, I remember waking up in the morning and, and context for this is for years, like when I was starting to go into the military and then when I was volunteering to deploy and people would ask me, why are you doing this? Um, I would always say the same thing because it's all I knew to say and it's how I felt, which was, um, you know, if I do my, no matter what you think about all this, if I do my job well, maybe some more Americans get home safely. And, and I remember always thinking about the fact I didn't feel like most soldiers, it turns out, I didn't feel that I'd adequately done that and that I'd achieved that. And, uh, and then I woke up, you know, this morning, three, four days, whatever it was after, after my announcement. And my wife was reading something on her phone and she was like, I'm going to read you something I just read in the news. Don't argue with me about it. And I was like, all right. And, uh, and she said, apparently since your announcement, it's like, I can get emotional telling this story. Uh, anyway, she said, apparently since your announcement, calls to the VA or to the Veterans Crisis Line have tripled. Uh, and uh, anyway, so that was like the first time that I, and I remember saying to her, like having a really hard time getting it out, but saying, this is the first time I've ever felt like I have I helped some people get home safely. And, uh, and, and I remember like really liking the way that felt. And what we haven't talked about yet is, because um, I haven't mentioned it, is that the organization that helped me get help quickly and expedited is this nonprofit here in Kansas City called Veterans Community Project. Well, I was really inspired by their work. And, you know, six, seven months after starting therapy, and I was really starting to get my legs under me and thinking about what I might want to do. I also was just hanging around VCP, as we call it, Veterans Community Project a lot. And they said to me, uh, you know, the CEO and co-founder said, hey, everybody wants us to take what we do here and take it national. We've been invited by all these other communities. We don't really know how to create a national organization. You've done it before. Do you want to just come here and do that? And I was like, that is what I want to do. And so what we do is we, we do outreach operations and help any vet with anything uh, through walk-in clinics. And then we also create villages of tiny houses for homeless veterans and, and make a huge dent in veterans homelessness. Um, and I'm the president of the of Veterans Community Project now, and I'm taking it national. And so now that's what I do, man. I, 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 help, I help people get home safely uh, who were in my situation in a lot of ways. And so I love it. That's amazing, man. That is, that is wonderful. The one thing you said um, that, that really got me was, you know, you decided to live your right, live your life rather than see how it appeared to other people. Is that a conversation you have a lot with your program? Uh, with, you mean when, with the, in therapy and yeah, with, with, with therapy, yeah. with, with other vets, um, just anyone kind of going through the struggle. Cause I feel like that's pretty big is like how you're perceived versus actually living your life there. There's a pretty big difference there. Yeah, I think that's a big conversation. You know, you don't got to have PTSD to like a lot of, I mean, I just think there's a reason that like the number one book selling in, in airport bookstores is, you know, uh, the subtle art of not giving a fuck. Like it's, it's, and it's a great book. It, um, yeah, like I'm, 
I'm in a real, I don't give a shit, man. I mean, I like, um, I, uh, but you know, I give a shit about things that you should give a shit about. I just no longer give a shit about whether people think I give a shit about the right things. And, and that's very freeing. Um, and you know, you don't have to, you don't have to throw away a promising campaign for mayor, your hometown, or even maybe for president in order to get there. Uh, that's not necessary. Happens to be, I guess, how I landed there. But um, yeah, it's really good for my mental health. I, I wanted to uh, just say two things. One is it's just really amazingly cool that you're, you got help from an organization, from an organization that you are now part of to give help to others. And what a great and incredible chain that is. That's a beautiful, just an incredible reminder of how we are both on the receiving end and the giving end uh, in, in the best relationships and the things that are most gratifying and satisfying to human interaction that you give and receive. And I think, I think that's, that's a really beautiful um, aspect to what you're doing. I also, I have to admit in, in our country, the, there is uh, the element of hypocrisy. It makes me crazy that we, we love to celebrate our soldiers. We, we talk a good game and it's such, it's like, my God, you can't ever diss a soldier. That's like the worst thing you could do in America, but it's not a country that actually gives a shit what's happening. There's way too many soldiers who are homeless, who are uh, helpless, uh, uh, don't uh, don't have hope. Um, so this is I, I I'm imagining going to be an amazing service that you're going to do for a lot of your of your colleagues to keep this issue something that people to actually take seriously and don't let go on the back burner uh, until there's a scandal because that's usually when you hear about there's some scandal and then all of a sudden everybody wants to talk about the needs of veterans. Well, yeah, I appreciate that. I'm. <clears throat> I'm really proud of what, what we do. So for those listening, you, you can go to veteranscommunityproject.org uh, and you can support our work. But the, one of the, there's a lot of things about the organization that I think are just ingenious and I didn't start it. So I, I, I don't take credit for those things, um, but there, that's what attracted me to it. And when I was, when I, I first toured the place, actually, when I was running for mayor and, um, and I remember being really struck by it because it just the, just the work environment. I mean, it felt like, like a, a forward operating base in Afghanistan and a startup in Silicon Valley had a baby, right? I mean, it's just an incredible place because um, it was it was started by combat veterans. Um, and in fact, just about all of us who lead the organization are combat veterans and also veterans of the Kansas City VA PTSD clinic. Um, so we are really cognizant of the fact that across the street in our village of, of 49 tiny houses where there are formerly homeless veterans living, there's just a few minor factors in our life that are the reason that we're in the admin building and not in the, in the houses. Uh, and the, none of them are necessarily because of our own doing. Right. And so one of the, but to get to my point, one of the things that I think is particularly ingenious about the organization is that what these guys did is they recognized that there's a deep reservoir of goodwill toward veterans in this country. And that a lot of people are really interested in doing more for veterans, but the average person gets an opportunity to do what? Like, stand up at a ball game and applaud when it vets on the jumbotron. And that's about it. And what VCP did is it said, well, you know what, we're going to create a place where whatever it is you do, you may be a mental health provider, maybe you're a dentist, maybe you're a veterinarian who wants to treat these, these folks animals, or maybe you cut hair, fix cars, don't matter. This will be the place where you can do whatever it is you do and you can do it for veterans. So we don't wait on, you know, we don't wait on federal services. We don't wait on anything. 
we find people who want to help veterans and we, and, and we bring them into our community and, uh, and, and we cross that civil military divide. And, and I think there's a big need for that. I think that's a lot. It says a lot about your personality. Um, you know, your podcast, Majority 54, you're trying to have progressives talk to Trump voters and, and make a dialogue. And being a connector, I think, is what America needs right now more than anything else. People who don't write off large other segments of, of the population and refuse to talk. So I, I absolutely love that. And I'm going to just say I'm in music. I'm a music promoter. And I'm just going to say I would like to text you separately and suggest maybe I can get some musicians that would love to do some service and help. And I have a lot of wonderful, wonderful musicians that I represent at every level. And I know they love to make music for whoever will listen. I, I think it would be a great, a great thing that we could maybe bring to the table. So some entertainment for people who might really enjoy it. So I had to get that out there. I'll take you up on it. Um, yeah, we're going to do that. You're, you're on the record now, so oh, thanks. Yeah, I appreciate it. I can't tell you. I, there's a lot of people who would be excited at the opportunity. Could, I'm going to ask you one more very, uh, very, very detailed, uh, not detailed, but but day-to-day -day question. Tell us about your day-to-day -day maintenance of your of your well-being. What 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 do you do day-to-day -to, -day to keep yourself in, on a healthy track? Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that question. Um, you know, I think the first thing that comes to mind is um, physical health. Um, you know, for all those years that I was just burning the candle at both ends, I, I didn't take care of myself at all. Um, you know, I, I was, I was thin. So people didn't like think, Oh, that guy's really out of shape. Like, but I was just like real skinny and, and, um, and I didn't feel good. My back hurt all the time. Everything hurt. And, uh, and now I've, re I realized like mental health and physical health to me are very tied together. So, you know, I, I built a pretty elaborate gym in my basement, which has become pretty handy during COVID. And uh, we, you know, I work out about six days a week and I, I set pretty silly um, physical goals for myself. And, you know, I'm 39 years old, almost 40. I got out of the, uh, out of the army at what, like at 30. Um, and, uh, and this is the best shape I've ever been in physically. Um, so, that's a big part of it for me. Um, and that sort of is, is when I first entered this phase a couple of years ago, it was meditation and I still do meditate from time to time, but like my gym time has kind of become my meditation. Um, and, and then I guess the rest of it is like, I do things that make me feel valuable to others uh, and not like make me feel like other people like me. That's the difference. Like that, you know, today is a good example. Like I had several meetings for work um, where I feel like I made a contribution leading my team and, um, and I feel good about that. And that makes me feel good. Um, and I, so I know when I'm, when I'm off, I'm like, did I do anything today that felt valuable? And it doesn't even have to be at work. Like, you know, if I make my son laugh really hard, well, that was valuable. Um, and so I, I focus on that kind of thing. And, and the other thing is like, I, I prioritize the right stuff now. I mean, I, I drop my son off at school. I'm the one who does it every morning. I'm the one who makes his breakfast. I'm the one, you know, who gets everything ready. I'm the one who picks him up. I'm the one who helps him with his homework. Now we have a three month old daughter and that's why I'm the one doing these things. Right. Um, I'm not saying like I'm super dad, my wife, you know, we, we have division of labor and that's currently how we're doing mornings and afternoons. But the point is like, I, I don't miss that. Like I make sure, that's not going to be something I miss. That's not going to be, it's extremely rare that I'm like, I need 
my mom or my mother-in-law to come over and, and take over so I can go do work during those periods of the day, right? I'm going to make that happen. And I'm going to turn off work for the most part at five o'clock. Um, so that's the stuff I do. And it's just completely different than the person I used to be. And then I work on things I care about. I'm, I'm writing a book to do, you know, to try and help people with something that I care about. I'm, uh, you know, I have a podcast to preach a message that I care about. Uh, I was, I ended up, you know, I ended up helping as a Biden surrogate on TV, but not because I wanted anything. I didn't, I just, you know, the convention came around and I was like, I know I don't want to look back on 2020 and feel like maybe I could have done more and I want to help. I, don't, I, I like Joe Biden. I know Joe Biden. I want him to be the president and I really didn't like the other guy. And I was like, so I got to do more, you know, not because I had to do more but because I wanted to do more. And, and so I contacted the campaign. I said, hey, I'll help. And they put me to work. So I do things that I think are important and that matter to me. Um, and oftentimes those involve helping other people. But what I don't do is feel like I owe it to everybody else to be doing stuff that I don't want to do. Yeah, that's a really rambly answer. That and I, I eat super healthy. That helps too. <laughs> not, I drink a lot of water. That's a big really. part of it. That's a big part of adulthood is hydration. I drink a gallon of water a day. Do that too. Yes. <laughs> I'm terrible. Uh, I do not drink enough water and I've got to get more sleep. And, you know, I just love the idea that life is a mixture of very grandiose uh, things that we're supposed to think about and accomplish at the same at the same time. It's really a lot about drinking your gallon of water and uh, taking care of yourself. There's you know you got to do a little bit of both. Um, we don't want to keep you from your your uh, family. I know you married your 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 childhood sweetheart, so clearly you uh, that's always a, a a beautiful thing to hear. You have two young children. We wish you and your family just every every uh, good thing. Uh, Adam, any last uh, things you want to say or takeaways or um, I just, I just wanted to save this part for last. Um, I just want to thank you just for being a great Jewish role model um, for me, my son, my family, dude, you're just an awesome guy. And that's awesome. So mm. thanks, man. thank you, man. <laughs> and right. uh, if I could get a Shalom y'all, that'd be pretty sweet. Yeah. <laughs> shalom y'all. Shalom y'all. You sort of got to lean into it. It's shalom, y'all. Yeah. Um, so, well, Jay, thank you Jason, very much. We, we would love to have you back in the future. You know, maybe there's some some contacts that you, you know, anytime you're like, hey, you know, I'd like to talk about this, work through an idea, talk to us. I didn't get to talk to you. Uh, you mentioned a couple of other wonderful and interesting things about your bio. I'm not going to actually do it. We'll just save those for a future <laughs> show. So uh, happy Friday night. Next week is a, a new world for all of us. And let's hope it's a more peaceful and better world. Uh, for our country and uh, maybe this is the year where we put this ugly ugly virus behind us and, and, and a whole new a whole new time in america and the world so anyway adam you want to uh, bring it on down right on well this has been another episode of the veer vulnerabilis veer podcast i'm adam glimsky i'm albert imperato and i am jason kander thank you for listening 